Hello and welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. It is May the 22nd, 2019. I'm James Briarton. Welcome to episode 278 of our weekly weather hangout. If you're joining us live right now on Facebook, Periscope, Twitch, maybe YouTube, feel free to comment in real time using the chat functionalities there. We might ask your questions to our guest tonight, who is Jared Rennie. Uh, we're going to be talking about all sorts of great things, including how they store so much of that very important weather data, which just before the show, Melissa and Evan were digging through, and we're going to be sharing some of uh, their fun findings as well too. This is a live broadcast, so we hope you will be getting involved with us. But if you're listening tonight on our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of your favorite app platforms, we'll give our guests a uh, time at the end of the show to share uh, how you can connect with him and ask questions as a follow-up. Uh, so you're certainly a part of tonight's conversation as well, too. We're also watching the weather it's going to be hot here, but we've got big storms again moving across the Central Plains. And we've got activity out in the Atlantic. And we'll have that coming up for you at the start of our 9 o'clock hour when we do our weather roundtable. We're going to do something a little extra special. This is uh, Jared's first full hour with us, if I'm not mistaken. But we've seen him once before. And if you're a Carolina Weather Group super fan, you may remember that last year at the Shill Museum, we had the weatherproof event, and uh, Jared was there. We talked a little bit about what he does, but he also showed us how to properly measure rainfall in your own backyard, and we want to go ahead and roll that tape. We are here now with Jared from the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies. Is that right, Jared? That is correct, yes. So what do you guys do? So we do a lot of different things. So we're meteorologists, but we do no forecasting. So I have no idea what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. So we actually go backwards. So we're housed within NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. Um, they house all the world's weather data. Um, we have weather data going back to the 1700s. We have over, to get technical, we have about 36 petabytes of data in that building. I don't even know how big that is. That's, uh, uh, so a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes and a petabyte is a thousand terabytes. So weather records going back to 1700s, yes. what were they recorded on and how do you access them now? Well, so back then, obviously, we didn't have computers, so we recorded. they recorded them on paper. And then um, it was actually, uh, it really started to become big in the U.S. in the late 1800s um, through something called the Cooperative Observer Program. And then, uh, so they, they continued to write them down and then the computers came and then they started digitizing more. Um, so, you know, now it's just you do it on your phone or it's just automatically through a weather station. Um, but there was a group for many years that did nothing but just digitize those weather records. And uh, you mentioned weather stations a moment ago, yes. and we are here today at the Weatherproof event, and I see you have stuff on the table that uh, families and kids have been coming by to check out. What do you have on display here? So we have a lot of different things here. Um, I have, let's see, we have this, the anemometer here, the cup anemometer that measures the wind speed. Uh, we also have a rain gauge. Um, it's just your standard rain gauge that people use. Um, part of the uh, good example is the Cocoa Ros network. We've been, trying to we've been trying to get people to be Cocoa Ros observers here. We've got one in Gaston County. Can you show up, us that so. rain gauge? And yes. Anybody watching online who wants to know how they should be measuring the rain? Uh, yeah. So this is so there's an outer tube and an inner tube. So every morning, um, if you are so I'm a Cocoa Rise observer. So every morning at seven o'clock, I go in and I see how much rain fell, and then I report it. And it's also important to say that no rain happened. So it's important. Those zeros are very important for for people. Um, so, but if it did rain, it'll fill up in this gate in this little cylinder first, and it's got it's got the measurements here that say, you know, what how much it is. It goes up to one inch, and if it's over an inch of rain, it'll overflow into the outer outer rim here. So. And Kokoros, just to remind folks listening and watching, is a network where anyone can yes. voluntarily send in these uh, weather reports, and then you guys are putting them on the record and holding copies yep. of them? Yep, Kokoros stands for the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, Snow Network. Um, it's very easy to sign up. Um, it's free to sign up. Uh, they give you... Uh, links, I believe, to go purchase one of these rain gauges. I think these are just thirty dollars, um, and then uh, it tells you how to, you know, to download the app, to do your reports, and then that's just one of the many networks that ends up in our weather building to, to archive. Fabulous! Thank you for your time, Jared. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So we always like when we can go back to our archive, and uh, that's a little bit of what we did there from uh, last September. Now to begin tonight's live interview and lead us through the conversation, I'll welcome in Carolina Weather Group panelist Evan Fisher, who is in Asheville, North Carolina. Evan, good evening. He is a research associate at the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies. Uh, I call it NCIX. Maybe, I don't know if that's a proper short name for it, uh, but also here in Asheville, um, Jared, so we have this saying that we like to do with all of our first-time guests. 
Um, and I see Scotty just joined on. I know he's uh, the one leading this. But what's your typical, what, what's your weather journey? What got you so interested in, uh, you know, the position and job that you have now? Yeah, I, I tell people that um, my my story is interesting because I wanted to do one thing and then I ended up doing something different. So like with any passionate weather enthusiast, you know, there was a specific weather events that, you know, got me really interested. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's a big hurricane or a big tornado outbreak. Mine was just a simple thunderstorm. And um, I actually don't even remember what day it was. I was, I was so young. Um, I was out camping with, with the Boy Scouts. And there was a severe weather cell that just came over our area um, in New England. I'm from um, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and they don't typically get, you know, that crazy severe weather, but there was an overnight thunderstorm that came through and it just woke me up and um, it scared the living hell out of me. And from that day forward, I was glued to the weather channel and what became the, uh, the unofficial weather forecaster for our Boy Scout troop, um, just constantly monitoring. Um, basically, at the time, it was just the weather channel because we didn't even have a computer. Um, so watching all the local on the eights and such. Um, and then... Over the few, you know next few years, I, you know, I decided that that was something I wanted to pursue. So I went to um, a small school in New Hampshire called Plymouth State University. Um, I got my bachelor's degree there in meteorology, and then I stayed there for another two years for for um, my master's degree. And then I was able to spend a summer down in uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida, doing some research for one of our professors. And um, we were working with both the uh, 45th Weather Squadron of the Air Force and uh, NASA. Uh, they had a, an applied meteorology unit at the time. And they were really concerned about thunderstorms down at Cape Canaveral for one, lightning, obviously. Um, but also they were worried about uh, what we call microbursts, which are really uh, strong winds that come down from a thunderstorm. And they can be as high as 70, 80 miles per hour. So now down there they shoot a lot of rockets and at the time they were launching the space shuttle. Um, so if you had a billion dollar SpaceX payload get knocked over by some wind, a lot of people wouldn't be very happy. So they wanted to do some forecasting for that. Um, so I developed some algorithms um, using data from uh, a weather center in Asheville, North Carolina, um, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about soon, but um, and I did a lot of processing of that data and it led to some research and it led to some uh, papers and, and presentations at conferences. Um, and then essentially one thing led to another uh, through networking and I basically got my job here in Asheville. I work for NC State um, and they call us North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies, uh, but we're housed inside of NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information which is one of the largest repositories of weather and climate data in the world. And I've been here for about 10 years. So anyone who doesn't know, which probably no one does except for Jared and I, I actually got the opportunity to uh, shadow Jared last year at his job and kind of see what, what it all is that he does during his day job. Uh, it's really cool stuff. But one of the things I was most confused about during my time there was how all the different agencies kind of coincide. And you talked about North Carolina Institute for Climate Sciences, um, but then there's also uh, NCEI, and then I think there's also an Air Force squadron that works in the same building as you. How do all these different agencies, you know, work together or, or maybe separately? And what it is, what is it that each one of them focuses on? Yeah, so I will apologize in advance. We do like, you know, in the weather community, there's all these acronyms and the climate community, there's all these acronyms. And then like in Asheville alone, we have our own like alphabet soup. So I will, I will do my best to try to lay out all the acronyms. So the main tenant of the building is NOAA. So that's National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. So, and um, that's, uh, some of the listeners might have heard it as the National Climatic Data Center, which was NCDC. Um, a lot of their websites still have that acronym there. And that's what it was called from 1982 to about 2014. And then they changed their name to NCEI which is the National Centers for Environmental Information. So that's sort of the federal entity under, the, um, under NOAA, under the Department of Commerce. And their task is to basically pull in all the data um, and uh, store it on very large computers and keep them maintained, you know, make sure the servers don't crash, um, and then disseminate it out to the public through um, you know, your typical customer service reps and such. So people 
want to get data, they can actually, we have a number, we have an email you can call and get some of the data. Um, but we also house it on various internet streams, um, something called, you know, like your typical HTTP server. We also have an FTP ser server, which stands for File Transfer Protocol. Maybe going down a rabbit hole there, but they their their goal is to archive and steward the data. So now there's different data users that are in in this building. Um, the other main tenant is the Air Force. So that's uh, I think they're the 14th Weather Squadron. So I did work with the 45th Weather Squadron. This is the 14th Weather Squadron. So they they take a lot of our data and do some analysis with it um, for their operations um, here in the US and also worldwide in different theaters. And um, they actually, they maintain their own data sets as well, um, their own deployments um, and weather instruments. And that's pretty much all I can say because a lot of this stuff is top secret um, for, for, for reasons, I guess. Um, but uh, we, do, we do some collaboration with them on certain projects. Um, some of them can be related to global uh, climate indices and some are, you know, about different Air Force bases like Tinker Air Force Base or um, Langley and so on and so forth. Um, there's a few other entities of the building. There's different contractors that I won't get into too, too much, um, but they basically help NOAA with their mission. And then there's us. So I work for NC State. They're located, you know, the, the main campus of NC State is in Raleigh, the, the state capital of North Carolina. Um, but we are actually, you know, we're housed here in Asheville because we want to work really closely with, with the federal government. Now, I don't know how we pull that off, but we basically convinced Raleigh to not live in Raleigh. So um, so we, we are, there's about 30, 35 of us here in Asheville. And we do multiple different projects. Our, our main funding is through NOAA. We are actually classified as something as called the Cooperative Institute. There's about, I think there's like 15 or 16 scattered across the United States. Um, these are research institutions that work with NOAA on a specific project. So, um, for example, one, a couple of the more famous ones is the, the Mesoscale one that's in Norman, Oklahoma, that, do, that uh, they do tornado research. There's one in Madison, Wisconsin that does satellite research. So we're kind of the climate data weather data component, and we work alongside uh, NCEI. So that's basically a summation of all the, you know, uh, weather and climate entities in the building. But it is a federal building, so there's still the IRS, the FBI, um, there, the courthouse is right next door, so it, there, it's a big federal campus. And that, that sort of leads into my question now. Uh, one of the things that NCEI does I'm not sure if you're part of it is NOMADS. And, and for those who don't know, NOMADS is that's the uh, NOAA Operational Model Archive and Distribution, where you, you get uh, mature ocean modeling and prediction systems in order. Do you work with that very much? And to what extent? That's what fascinates me a lot about this is it's not just atmospheric, it's also oceanic. Right. So um, I personally don't work with it. Um, but I know some other colleagues uh, that do because, you know, NOAA is the, you know, there's the atmospheric component and then there's the ocean and then, you know, things couple within the two. Um, so, no, I, I personally don't work with that data set, but I know a lot of people that do. We have, I mean, some colleagues use it for, you know, for, you know, surface, sea surface temperatures and then um, another entity is maybe for sea ice. Um, but that's a little bit outside of my my expertise range, but um, but yeah, I do, I am aware that people are using it. Understood. So um, yeah, but I didn't know which way you were going to go with that one, but but I know there's a there's a word that I see that um, a lot of folks may not know is petabytes, and so we talk about large amounts of data. How much is a petabyte, and and how much data are we talking here? Okay, so I actually I I, I love this part because I do this all the time. I go out to schools and here in the Asheville area, and I tell them, you know, we have a lot of weather data. And I ask them, like, well, how much do you think? And so I, I kind of give them a reference. I say, like, well, you know, my phone has about, you know, 64 gigabytes. And the laps, like, laptops typically have about 512 gigabytes. So that's kind of your standard if you go into Best Buy, um, a gigabyte represents roughly a thousand megabytes, which roughly represents a thousand kilobytes. So kilobytes, megabytes, gigabytes, those seem to be, those are, you know, words and phrases that, you know, you can, you'll see in a Best Buy ad or, you know, at, you know, at your local IT store or whatever. 
we're way higher than that. So a thousand gigabytes is a terabyte. So now if you have, I don't actually I have one with me here. I have, I have this external hard drive here. This is about one terabyte of data. Um, and some of the more advanced computers have this. And then a thousand terabytes, so a thousand of these is a petabyte. NCI, I just found this out last week. NCI currently has 38 petabytes of data. So that's about, okay, let me do the math. It's about, so a thousand, thousand terabytes to petabytes. So it's about 38,000 of these. And kids love that. I, I usually give them a reference, like if you stack iPhones, you know, up to the, about, you know, the size of the Eiffel Tower, you know, that's about 1600 feet. You do it once, you got to do it a hundred more times. To, it just to kind of show how much data we have. That's huge. What do it's you have, a lot. like massive super servers that hold all this information? Yeah, so our uh, our building is about uh, five floors in the basement. Um, the, the third floor is just nothing but computer servers. It's actually, I couldn't even tell you anymore because they actually don't let us in there. I did a tour there once in like 2012, but it's like completely been rehauled since. Um, so yeah, they have... It's just nothing but a computer farm in there. And they actually, and people do ask this is, do we have a backup? And the answer is yes. And I know it's somewhere close. I'm just not sure where, but we do have a backup in case of any failure. Sorry, I couldn't find my unmute button. That's awesome. It's amazing how much data is there. And I would love to have my fingertips and all of that someday. Um, so with all this data, I know that you do a lot of work with Python and GIS and all that stuff. And for people that follow you on Twitter, they probably see some of your maps. Um, and I, I know you compete a little bit with Brian Brett Schneider, who we had on the show. Um, He's my mortal enemy. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, so kind of tell us what is it exactly that you do with all these different maps and stuff? What do you try to portray? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question because, you know, I go, it's funny because I go, when I go to conferences, um, people, when people usually go to scientific conferences, they go to an area that interests them. And then they go and, you know, talk and network about the science. And I do that. But what I like to do is I, I try to track down people who went and got NCI data. And I'll go up to them. And my first question will be like, you know, how easy was it for you to get the data? Or what did you do to the data? What did you do to transform it into this math and such? And I, I've gained a lot of insight from that. So whenever now, you know, 38 petabytes is a lot of data. I mean, there's no way I can pull it all down onto my, my computers here. I'm actually staring at three laptops right now. I, there's no way I could do it. So I have to figure a way to slice and dice it to meet the needs of a customer. And then the question becomes, well, what's the customer? Because somebody in, somebody in let's say, the energy sector might want something different than a farmer who might want something different than an emergency manager, you know, and, and so on and so forth, or who might, you know, maybe the CEO of Lowe's or home improvement, they might want to, you know, something different. So I have to think about that all the time. So a couple of years ago, I became really, really fascinated with two things, um, Python, which is a programming language, um, and uh, GIS, which is geographic information systems. So I, I use basically the, the only way I could, deal with any of this data is through coding. I mean, that's actually like my nine to five job. You know, I, my, I'm trained in meteorology and I'm sure if you put a 500 millibar map in front of me, I could explain it to you. But my nine to five job is I sit in an office cubicle and I code, you know, just all day long. And basically pulling down data from a server and then slicing and dicing it into some fashion. So usually I pull down data for the entire globe, but I might only need Western North Carolina or I might only need upstate South Carolina. So I have to go in and figure out how am I gonna slice that? And the only way I can do that is through Python um, and or, or any programming language. I, I prefer Python for a few reasons. One, because it's really readable. You're, you're able to understand it very quickly. Um, it's got some really neat functions to do things really fast. Um, and it's also free. <laughs> I like that component as well. Um, and it's got some cool visualization tools. So what I've, what I've done recently is I've been able to create some scripts and just pull it, you know, pull data down, do some analysis on it, and then plot it. And it takes time to do, to make it just right. 
because what you may think is perfect may not necessarily be perfect for your customer or your user. So I've done a few use cases where I've shown this to people and I've said like, hey, what do you think of this? And you know, they sometimes they go, I don't know what the heck you're, I'm looking at, which is helpful. It really is helpful. Even, um, you know, it might sound negative, but it, it truly is helpful to help understand the data. And that's actually what I use social media a lot for. I use Twitter a lot to showcase some of the stuff so that people can see it. And then, you know, if they have any comments that, you know, they, they can just hit me hit me up with a message and say, hey, what about this? What about you know, X, Y, Z, or have you thought of this? So I, I, I find that to be really helpful. And then geographic information systems is you're putting it all on a map. So Brian Brettschneider, yes, he's my mortal enemy, but he does amazing work using NCI data. And he takes all the data and he puts it into um, one of the, what I assume is the software package known as Esri's ArcMap. And it can do some extra spatial, um, what they call like interpolation and a few extra statistics onto it and a little bit of smoothing to make a really nice map and to kind of display information in areas that may not have, let's say, a weather station. Like, for example, there's no, there's not a weather station at my house. I have a Cocoa Ross rain gauge, but I don't have like a thermometer near me. But being able to do some interpolation over the area, I can get a better picture of that. So, and... I've been here for nine, 10 years, and I love doing that. I really love just programming, solving a problem, putting it on a map and visualizing it. Like that, I love that way more. And if you ask me what the weather's gonna be like tomorrow, I have no clue. <laughs> I, I, I can jump in and say that, you know, similar, uh, similar to what, uh, what you do, Jared, I do as a service climatologist. So, um, you know, people ask me what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. And I'm like, well, I can tell you what it was three days ago, but maybe not so much in the future. Um, you know, you mentioned that you've been in the field for nine, 10 years, but you really do a lot with early career meteorologists and professionals through the, um, National Weather Association and also the uh, American Meteorological Society. And I know some of that comes through through the Twitter, social media, different things that you do. So can you kind of talk about how you take some of your experiences in the last decade or so um, and help kind of cultivate the, the, the data stewardship of, of some of those new career meteorologists? Yeah, it's so I've I've actually been a member of AMS, the American Meteorological Society, since I was in college. And they were, I was part of the student chapter that was in, in New Hampshire. And it was really helpful. It was, it, it was kind of more, it was, it was just a way to be social with people. And it was a way for people to get together that were, in, that was interested in weather. And just kind of, I mean, sometimes it was have a weather discussion, but sometimes it was just watch a movie. And there was a really interesting social aspect of that. And then those are the local chapters. And then they have a national chapter. And every year they have an annual meeting. And I went to a couple of those. And what had happened is when I finished my, my graduate school, I kind of fell out of AMS a little bit because it was too expensive to go. It was... Um, I didn't feel like I felt out of place as an early career professional. Um, maybe there was some imposter syndrome in there. Like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't go to the conference. I don't deserve to be there. I'm just starting. I can't go up to the likes of Louis Uccellini or Paul Cosin or, or some, you know, people that are highly, highly respected in the weather field. So I kind of, I was still a member, but I didn't really do much with any of the societies. Then in 2012, 2013, they, they announced that they were going to have a conference that was solely on early career professionals. And I was like, this is right up my alley. Because at the time, they had a student conference, which was great, and it's still amazing now. But their focus is more about how do you get a job? How do you get into grad school? And that doesn't really help me, because I already went to grad school, and I already got a job. So I wanted to know more about things as an early career professional. So I went to this conference. And it was four hours long, and it was amazing. And it was learning things like, like balancing work and life, you know, how to how to deal with, you know, tough situations with leaders, you know, how to move up in the field, 
do you switch sectors? Like if you're a broadcast meteorology, do you go to the private sector? It, I mean, it was all this really interesting stuff. And I was like, I got to be a part of this somehow. So about a year later, I joined their board. And they, one of the things they do is they have a big presence on social media. And now this is bringing back the social piece that I talked about at the beginning is I didn't, it felt like a family, uh, a family of weather enthusiasts. You know, here in Asheville, you know, I have colleagues and such to, to talk about, you know, our work in science and such, but didn't really feel like a family per se. Whereas on the weather Twitter side of things, essentially, and, and AMS, it really felt like a family. And I really grasped onto that. And sort of as so I'm still involved with the early career professional board, actually, I'm, I'm the chair this year. Um, and then I'm actually rolling off when in January, but, um, but it's been an amazing experience. And we do we have a conference every year at the annual meeting. Um, it went, you know, it first started as a four-year, or excuse me, it first started as a four-hour event. Now it's a day and a half. Um, and we have all these social events. Um, we have social events at regional conferences now, um, which, by the way, we're planning on doing one in Charleston next month. Um, and then we are um, very active on social media. And it's just basically to get people to come together. And I, I just, I don't know, I, I've been really passionate about that. Yeah, I joined the AMS chapter in Charleston this year while I was at school, uh, and I, I gotta say I was very impressed. I know you had told me about it while I was here in Asheville last year, and I, I never got around to going to anything, um, but definitely something I want to get more involved in. So I want to transition away from that to one last main topic. Last year you started your own business, um, and, and I'm assuming it has something to do with being a certified consulting meteorologist. Tell us exactly what that is, and you know what your business is. Yeah, so I. One of the things I learned at being part of AMS is that you can get certified. And they basically have two certifications. Um, NWA, the, there's another association called the National Weather Association. They have certifications as well. And it's a way, for, for me, I could go back to get a, to get a PhD. Um, but I, a couple things have kind of, I've thought about it for a while and it's just not something I've, I've wanted to do. One of the reasons is family. Um, I do have a wife and a three-year-old. So it would be it would be very hard for me to you know go back to school for that. So I thought of other ways like well, what what can I do with you know my skill set? And so this certification that AMS had really resonated with me. So now most most people think of the certification as the certified broadcaster. So there's a lot of broadcast meteorologists that are on TV that have been um, they may have a little seal on their on their banner. It says AMS certified. So that's actually a certified broadcast meteorologist. So they've gone through this rigorous test to, you know, um, to prove that they are, to prove that they're worthy of, a, of to be a broadcast meteorologist or to be the trusted source in, in all things weather. Well, they have another one called the Certified Consulting Meteorologist, which is a little bit similar, um, it's not for broadcasts, obviously, but it's for, it's for people that wish to further their career some more, maybe in cases you don't want to get a PhD. Um, and it was, it was basically a certification to just basically have something, you know, it was nice to have on a resume. And then um, I just, it's one of the highest, you know, recognitions from AMS. And I was like, I got to be part of this somehow. So I, it was a year long process. I had to do a written exam. I had to do an oral exam at the annual meeting. It was, it was a stressful year. And then when I found out I got it, it was super exciting. And then I was like, okay, what do I do with this now? So I talked to a few people who are CCMs. And they basically started their own business. And I'm like, okay, let's give it a try. Like I basically just winged it. And so I started a business about a year ago, kind of, you know, taking, you know, my expertise at, you know, using the data in NCI and applying it to a number of different things. Um, whether it's a company that's looking to just access the data and do some statistics on it, or um, an area that they call forensic meteorology. So which people get, you know, their eyes kind of go big. They're like, what's that? And I, I say, well, think of the show CSI, but for weather. And it truly is a thing where if let, let's say you're walking down the street and you go by a shop and you slip on some ice and you fall and you break your arm. And then the, that person that broke their arm sues the store because 
they claim that, you know, they were supposed to, you know, clean up their sidewalk. And then the store goes, no, it wasn't cold that morning. It was, you know, never hit, you know, below 32 Fahrenheit. So now they need a meteorologist or, or an expert witness to come in and basically prove what the weather was like at that specific point at that specific area. So they usually hire an expert witness and, you know, in order to hire an expert witness, they have to look for things like certifications and PhDs and such. So that's what the CCM essentially could be, is that they could hire somebody to, to do that work. And um, there's an amazing book that AMS published called Weather in the Courtroom um, that basically talked about all these different cases. And it really resonated with me. And I was like, well, I've got all the data and I could figure out all these answers. So like, why not apply that in this job? So. Basically, uh, that's that's what my company is. It's called what, uh, Rennie Weather. I couldn't think of a catchier title, title, so I just had to stick with my name, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's that's what that's what I do. Is I, you know, I offer my services for consulting meteorology and and uh, forensic weather. And I started that a year ago, and it's it's been pretty it's been pretty interesting so far. You know, there's a lot of times in which you know you you fail and you just kind of pick yourself up and you know keep keep on moving and keep going with it. But it's been it's been really interesting. And then kind of just one last thing is I, I have to be very careful with it because I have to I have to separate my daytime job with my consulting job. So my consulting job is nights and weekends. So I have to I have to balance that out. And it's been a really interesting balance so far. Shay, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? I saw you were looking interested. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so the mute button come off. I was getting ready to hop in. Uh, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty fascinating stuff. And, and you know, I've I've been asked a couple times to hop in on a couple of things that, for hot potato issues, like for instance, downtown Charleston in the middle of the summer, they run they have horses and carriages, and so they're doing impact studies on, um, you know, what's the past historical values look like. You know, what what, what sort of superheating are we getting over the the street? You know, and they want to get these studies in, and so that's a lot of forensics. I mean, you have to go back and do some historical analysis and historical data. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that you do some in, impact studies as well from all different trades uh, from different cities across the Southeast as well, or even beyond that. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, depending on the, the topic, I mean, we, there's, there's not a, I guess this might be a little cliche, but there's like not a study we don't do because it's, it's amazing and we collaborate with so many different organizations. There's there's a company here in Asheville called NEMAC, which is the, I think it's the National Environmental Modeling and Analysis Center. And they're, they basically take NCI's data and do impact studies for individual towns. Um, they, they definitely, they focus primarily on coastal, coastal towns in the Southeast, um, but I think they might do stuff in Charleston, don't quote me on that, but, um, but yeah, it's it's pretty amazing how weather data just gets impacted on everything. Very true, including insurance companies. So that's something to mm -hmm. keep in mind if you haven't. And we'll probably get to that in a little bit. But just you know, something we always we mention about insurance every year with the hurricane season coming and, and mm -hmm. flooding. Uh, but I'll pass it back on to Evan. Yeah, uh, I think that's all the questions we had on the rundown. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't know that meteorology could be, I never, never thought about it being applied in court of law. Um, it's unique. Uh, Scotty, I guess I'll hand it over to you to do the social side of things. Sure. Yeah. So, right. Jared, uh, send us your uh, social media information. Let us know how our followers can follow you. Yeah. So, I mentioned that I, I use Twitter a lot. I, I use it as like my... Uh, canvas if you will for for people to see what i can you know produce and provide very um good comments on it um so um I ba i'm basically on twitter it's jj rennie and so that's spelled j-j-r-e-n-n-i-e -E. um so yeah follow me for that um you can also follow um the organization i work for which is so so it's I work for NKICS, but we're also called kicks nc so that that twitter handle is kicks nc so that's c-i-c-s-n-c Awesome. awesome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Evan. Awesome, Jared. Thank you for uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to uh, James Burton. Is, uh, James, we've got some active weather going on in the uh, Central Plains. 
Yep, that's right, Scotty. And we're going to be taking a look at uh, that coming up here. It's uh, 8.56. We're drawing upon our 9 o'clock hour. Let me move my camera back over. It seems to have slid a little during the interview. I'll just lean. And uh, one of the things we want to do is actually dig back into our archive for the second time tonight because we were watching earlier today, as we have several times this week, live television coverage out of Oklahoma City. They've had not one but two PDS, particularly dangerous situation, uh, tornado watches play out there this week, including tonight and we were watching our pal and uh, one-time guest Damon Lane who is chief meteorologist at KOCO the ABC affiliate out there in Oklahoma City and uh, when he was on with us last October he told this one very particular story that always stuck with me how he was on the air the day a tornado was heading straight for his house his wife racing to get home let's play that audio for you I believe this was the year after you become the chief there at KOCO. Uh, and this one really had effects on you because on May 20th, you know, you're you're doing severe weather coverage, but you're also communicating with your wife because this this EF5 tornado is, is almost in your neighborhood. May 20th, and look at the, the information and the dry line is pretty much just a little bit farther west of Oklahoma City. I kissed my wife at the time, you know, it was just my wife and I and our dogs. We didn't have a child at the time. And I, I kissed her goodbye and I said, hey, you know, um, might be a long day. So at about noon, I sent her a text message and I said, hey, you probably want to go home early today. Storms, I thought you're gonna go up about one, two, three o'clock. You don't want to be on the roads when these storms are going up. Suddenly a storm's going up and we're in our coverage and I looked down and my wife had just sent me a text message and she said, hey, uh, you know, what's going on? And I, at this point, the storm's already, you know, hooking up. And I'm like, get home now. And so she's going home. I'm on air. This huge tornado is happening. And suddenly I get another text message from her. And she says, I'm trying to race home really fast. I can see the tornado behind me. And this tornado is coming right into our neighborhood. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out off camera because I'm not knowing, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, my wife is going to make it or if my house is still going to be there. But I knew that I can't freak out on television. If the meteorologist is freaking out, how are you supposed to stay calm, you know? Well, I didn't hear from her for a little while. And as a matter of fact, the very first time that I actually heard her voice was live on air. Um, I gave my phone to my general manager and I said, get my wife on the phone. And, uh, and she went on air and she's like, it looks like a war zone in our neighborhood. Uh, you know, there's, there's no way that you can ever prepare yourself for how to handle yourself on television when there's a natural disaster happening, you know, whether it's an EF5 tornado or a hurricane. And, and there you have it, a look back down memory lane uh, with an interview there with uh, Damon Lane, who appeared right here on the Carolina Weather Group last October. Here's a real-time look right now, 9 o'clock on this Wednesday night of all the tornado warnings uh, that are out right now for the Central Plains. This is day three of severe weather coverage out there. I mentioned a moment ago that they have a particularly dangerous uh, tornado watch, and you can see that playing out here with a dozen or so tornado warnings at this hour those are the red polygons we have severe thunderstorm warnings as well too and yellow for damaging wind and hail and uh, it's worth mentioning all of this rain is also resulting in flooding we've seen uh, very unfortunate images uh, not only of closed roads but also of homes along rivers that have crested their banks and are now uh, beginning to destroy structures as well too so day three of a very dangerous weather system that is moving through the central plains tonight and uh, i know our panel guys have been watching it uh, very closely let me uh, bring in uh, scotty powell scotty i know you were watching the coverage before at oklahoma city uh day three of watching you know yet another day of live local dangerous weather impacting a community here in the united states what's stuck with you where things quickly ramped up where beginning of the day there was only a general thunderstorm to marginal risk and uh, before the spc was um, able to do an update there was a pds tornado watch issue so that just kind of shows you the volatility and the weather out in the great plains and just how quickly it can change and uh today i think kind of lined up more with what was expected um i, I think once we look at everything in the in the next day or so uh, the Tulsa metro area, Tulsa, Oklahoma, it looks like there's been at least three, maybe four long track tornadoes 
uh, that's kind of scurried around the, the downtown Tulsa area. I've uh, been able to, I've uh, been following that while we were listening to the interview. I was watching one of the uh, local affiliates out there and uh, still some tornado warnings out there. But uh, just looking at some of the LSR products that's coming out, the local storm reports, and it seems like there's going to be at least three, maybe four long track tornadoes in, in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, the Oklahoma City metro area, I can't think kind of uh, was, was saved from this episode again, which, which is a good thing. Uh, but uh, eastern Oklahoma really got it today. It just kind of shows you how volatile the weather is going to be. And, um, you know, this setup looks to continue at least maybe through early parts of next week uh, as this dominant high pressure over the southeast uh, kind of keeps all the storms on the periphery. And that would be Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, places like that. So uh, definitely uh, our thoughts and prayers with those folks. The flash flooding out there has been terrible. Uh, I saw one uh, home completely engulfed in, by the river uh, that was out there. I think it was in Comanche, Oklahoma. And so uh, just a lot of uh, flooding out there. I was listening to Damon's coverage earlier and see if this sounds familiar to you all around here. They are on their pace to be the wettest year on record in Oklahoma. And we're uh, just through the pace. So uh, well above the average show. rainfall out there with severe weather. So uh, for the chasers out there, it's been kind of crazy because not only the severe weather, but you've also had to dodge flash flooding and closed roads and, I'm honestly glad that I'm not out there this week because I think uh, it's it's kind of crazy out there. So, yeah, we're watching that severe weather, James. And thankfully, uh, it, it's not really going to be affecting our areas. We're going to, I guess, thankfully it's not affecting our area, but unthankfully it's going to be extremely hot this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we were actually just compiling uh, some graphics to show that that's right we are going to be spared at least for now any of this very dangerous weather but heat is also very dangerous and it's not something that's quite as attractive to watch as uh, tornado coverage might be or captivating maybe is a better word uh, but this is also a dangerous situation especially since it's the first time this year uh, that we will be getting ourselves into a heat wave uh, Melissa before the show we were talking uh, about some ways to uh, help keep you your family your animals safe during this heat wave that's correct so i mean as we're getting ready to go into memorial day weekend a lot of people are going to be spending time outdoors are going to be spending time out on the water um you know whether it's out on the boat on a lake um you know along the beaches and we're, we're looking at temperatures in some of our locations that are going to be pushing the 100 degree mark so we really are trying to get everyone to kind of prepare themselves and protect themselves with the heat. So to make sure that they have plenty of water while they're outside, you're not out during the, the heat of the day, take breaks, be in the shade, make sure you apply uh, your, your sunscreen over and over again. A, a sunburn is inconvenient, but it can also lead to, to far worse you know, health risks and everything. Um, and if you have to be outside for any particular reason, make sure you're wearing light clothing, lightweight clothing, um, clothing that can breathe, um, and, and that it's light colored and it can help reflect some of that sun. And we were talking before the show about, uh, you know, pushing a hundred degrees and one of the earliest dates that we've actually seen a hundred degrees, um, in, in the Southeast. And so we were just kind of pulling some of those stats together. So in South Carolina, um, actually the earliest recording of a hundred degrees in the Columbia area is going to be back in, um, May 22nd of 1941, we hit 100 degrees. Down in the Charleston area, they actually had 100 degrees the beginning of June 1985. Um, looking kind of across the line, you know, towards the, the Charlotte area, um, even into Raleigh, you could, the earliest occurrence of 100 degrees in both of those locations happened on June 3rd, 1895. They both hit the 100-degree the century mark. So having 100-degree weather this early in the season is not necessarily unheard of. Um, but, you know, given the fact that we were also looking at nighttime lows that may not rebound, um, that's really the, the nighttime temperatures getting down into the upper 60s is really what kind of gives everyone a break from the heat. And some of those temperatures, um, those nighttime lows don't even look like they may drop out of the mid 70s in some locations. So you're going from a really hot day to a really warm night and it's not giving your body a chance to recover from the heat. And then also when you look at like the air conditioning, the loads on, um, you know, the, the energy 
um, efficiency. If you live in an apartment and you're on the top floor, heat rises. Um, so you really just kind of have to watch the heat, watch how you respond to the heat, make sure you know what your, your, your stressors are. Um, and you know, know what the signs of a heat stroke or heat stress are, because I have a feeling, unfortunately, this weekend, we're going to have a lot of people coming down with heat related illnesses. Yeah, let me pop these numbers up uh, before we go over to Scotty. Here is the forecast for Columbia. We're looking at the heat index here on the screens. This is a few degrees warmer than the actual air temperature when we factor in things like dew points. As we head into your Memorial Day weekend, we're going to be at or over uh, that triple digit mark there. Again, we're a few days out from uh, all this coming into factor here, but the forecast, pretty high confidence that we'll be within a few degrees of what we got on the screen here for Charleston. Uh, here is Charleston, actually, and we're going to be a very similar story here. Talking to Jared yesterday, he was trying to understand exactly how that sea breeze would interact, and I'm sure Shay can weigh in on that momentarily as well, too. But this isn't even just a South Carolina story. Here it is in Raleigh, up in the uh, upper 90s, uh, as again, we will be dealing with very warm conditions. And we'll have it playing out here in the Charlotte area as well, too, where, Scotty, you guys will be at the uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway. It's that big Memorial Day race. How are you guys preparing for this? Yeah, um, thank you, James. Uh, we had a conference call yesterday with um, Atrium Health, um, Concord, Cabarrus, Emergency Management, uh, as well as Novant Health. And basically, I've been providing forecasts for last week and this week. And Honestly, the story has been heat. Um, there is an isolated chance of a pop-up shower storm, but we're looking at, as Melissa was talking about, uh, the record highs for Saturday and Sunday for the Charlotte Concord area is 96 and 97 degrees. We definitely can tie that. Maybe Sunday, uh, if we don't get any clouds to form, uh, we could surpass that record high. So uh, in those efforts, um, Charlotte Motor Speedway has contacted their sister uh, racetracks at Bristol Motor Speedway and Atlanta Motor Speedway. Uh, they are bringing in some cooling units. Uh, these are kind of those mister sprayers that you may see at a uh, Carowinds or an amusement park, uh, Disney World, something like that. Uh, they're bringing in some cooling tents as well. Uh, they have a big, big pavilion where uh, a lot of concerts and uh, sponsor displays are at. So they're going to have these big old uh, tents, uh, cooling tents for, for folks there. Uh, also, it's a big military um, day for, for Sunday, Memorial Day. Uh, there's going to be a lot of military dignitaries and, um, and uh, reenactments. And so uh, there's a lot of concern with the military folks who are going to be uh, dressed out in their, their tires. So that in itself is hot. Put 80, 98, 99 degree temperature on top of that. So uh, they've got uh, extra extra medical crews coming in. So a lot of uh, a lot of things taking place. Uh, they're going to be passing out some water and things like that to folks who need it and Powerade, uh, things like that to keep your electrolytes up. So uh, the Speedway is really taking uh, this uh, threat of heat seriously. And I think uh, everything's going to be covered. But our, our plea to folks who are coming out is please uh, drink your water, stay hydrated. Uh, another thing that folks may not remember is sunscreen. It's going to be very hot. Uh, it, it doesn't take long for your skin to burn, especially most of us are still kind of fair skinned since uh, we're coming out of the uh, winter and spring months into summer. So if you're going to be outside, make sure you have your sunscreen on, uh, dress in light colors and light clothing, and uh, just uh, stay hydrated mainly uh, with water, nothing but water. Water and uh, some electrolytes will keep you hydrated. So uh, we are definitely keeping an eye on that, James, and hopefully – uh, with the conclusion of the Coca-Cola 600, there's not a lot of heat-related um, illnesses at the Speedway. Sure. I was just thinking, plenty of Coca-Cola product to go around, I'm sure. Uh, Shay Gibson, you're a big fan of water sports. I'm sure you'll be down at the beach this weekend. Anyone watching from the Outer Banks through Charleston, what do you guys do in a situation like this? Well, <clears throat> one thing we got to keep in mind here is a lot of these hotter temperatures are going to be occurring inland. Our sea surface temperatures just got up to 81, so we surpassed that 80 degree mark where now water spouts can form, the waters uh, are, can breed tropical cyclone or assist with tropical cyclone development. Uh, we also have um, um, the maximum sea breeze potential that comes up. So with that said, it looks like Saturday could get muggy, so your heat indices, we have to keep that in mind because we have humidity. We have higher levels of humidity here at the coastline, especially with onshore winds blowing blowing that moisture into the coastline. When you get to the inland portions, that heat index, heat index really drives up. So you could have 99 degrees with a heat index of 110. 
Uh, I, I think the National Motor Service, they changed their criteria for issuing the advisories to up a little higher. I think it's around 110 or higher for the heat indices. Uh, and I'll check on that. But um, we, you will get relief if you're on the beach. That's going to be the best place to be because the wire temperatures being at 81 degrees will keep the overall ambient air temperatures along the barrier islands into about the upper 80s. So you'll get some relief there and in the water. I would suggest if you're going to go to the beach that you um, try to pick it during the Eh, you know, late morning hours. I mean, once we got beach crowds too, so we're going to have lines coming in and out. Uh, so keep that in mind. If you have kids and pets, uh, make sure your AC is working and don't leave kids in the car. Don't ever leave anything in the car that that uh, would suffer in the heat. So keep that in mind. You know, we always read these these horrible stories every year. Let's not do that again this year. Uh, keep in mind what the, the, the heat can actually do. But I think for the most part, James, getting back to the question was um, just stay, uh, stay cool, stay hydrated. And um, like beaches will be the place to be on the water. Uh, absolutely. I'll uh, be trying to stay cool here inland. Uh, Shay, let's stay with you if you're ready and, and ready to go to this. Uh, we have our start, the first named storm out in the Atlantic. We're so happy to have you back from your hiatus. You've been back with us for a couple of weeks now, but just in time for this hurricane season because Andrea came and went. Yeah, that's right. There's a little area just north of the Bahamas. It was uh, it developed into subtropical storm Andrea uh, over, op I would say, almost optimal water temperatures. But the, the, the width of the storm, it really didn't develop into a, a tight surface low. Uh, so it was real broad in, in, in its form. So that's hence the subtropical storm factor. Didn't live very long, about 24 hours before it fizzled out into a remnant low. And now it's heading off to the east northeast. Um, as far as the Atlantic goes, I'll go ahead and share screen. Sure. And that that is um, that's like five years in a row of preseason storms, by the way. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. We, we haven't had a, you know, a, a non preseason storm since 2014. So um, last year, something similar. We had Alberto, which formed towards the end of May. It's not uncommon to see that uh, very short lived weaker storms. Here's the Atlantic. Nothing is expected uh, for the next 48 hours or the next five days. Uh, as we move over to the eastern North Pacific, though, this little area down here, this could become Alvin. That's going to be the first storm name in the Pacific, in the eastern Pacific. And it's getting into a medium chance. Now, this area, we're going to have to watch this area the next week or two, especially in the Western Caribbean. So across the over towards the Yucatan Peninsula uh, is where we got to watch these systems. And if we look here at the storm tracks, for the month of June, so we start June 1st with the hurricane season in the Atlantic Basin. We, these are the areas that we typically would watch for tropical cyclone development. And this is right on point with what's going on in the Eastern Pacific because a lot of moisture is getting bottled up down there along a the monsoonal trough. And when you get enough moisture piled up into the Western Caribbean, you could get a system lifting up and, and heading up towards Florida. There was some models, GFS and the Euro was sort of playing with something about a week ago, and that, that signal is sort of weakened, but we have to continue to watch this area as moisture piles up. We could overall sea surface temperatures. We're pretty, um, you know, we're right on track with where we should be, and we're seeing a lot of 80s all around. And, and one of the hot spots you start to see is this Western Caribbean. You can see some of the warmer temperatures there getting to the mid to upper 80s. And so when you get a lot of moisture piling up from the easterly trades coming across the south of Dominican Republic and across Jamaica into this area, and you get a lot of moisture wrapping around monsoonal trough just to its south in the eastern Pacific, sometimes you get a, an aggregate of showers and thunderstorms that forms in this area and it lifts to the north. So we have to continue to watch. But for right now, there's nothing um, of, of any concern. It's just uh, an area that we watch going forward as we enter the beginning of the hurricane season, June 1st in the Atlantic Basin. No news is good news, I think. We will uh, we'll watch for that. I appreciate uh, that analysis, Shay. And uh, hurricane season, folks, starts June 1st. So as Shay mentioned, we did have Andrea. We had one name storm here before the start of the season. And uh, certainly only going to expect to see more of that as we head further into the summertime months. I think we're going to start to wrap things up here. Let me uh, bring back in uh, Scotty Powell, who normally uh, closes us out. Scotty, I don't know if you have any notes about what's coming up, but certainly the start of the hurricane season also means the reveal of so many of those great interviews that you guys recorded at Charlotte Douglas International Airport during Hurricane Awareness Week. Yeah, I'm waiting for those. I don't know when we're going to we're going to release those, but hopefully soon. Uh, I know next week 
Um, Dr. Philip Klotzbach will be on with us as our guest, and uh, we're going to be talking about the tropics. Um, Evan and I and Chris will technically not be here for the show. We'll be here for the show, but we won't be here for the show. Is that I'm docking your pay. We'll be uh, here, but from very far away. Yeah, we're not going to be in the Carolinas, that's for sure. I don't know where we'll be, but uh, we'll be somewhere... Uh, between Texas and North Dakota, I guess, and uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll plan to drop in. But uh, uh, myself and Evan and Chris, and uh, we're going to be taking a trip out to the plains, flying into Denver, Colorado on Monday morning. And I'm praying to God that there's no snow on the ground. <laughs> uh, I think it snowed the past couple of days out there, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, the snow is gone by the time we get there. But uh, Evan, we really have no agenda. We're just following wherever the storms take us. Exactly. There might be a, you know, a decent storm. I'm not going to call it outbreak, but some decent storms to chase Mon late Monday, maybe Tuesday. I'm not sure we can make anything on Monday. I'm just because we'll be landing at noon, but we'll see. Um, like you said, Scotty, we're going to be anywhere from Texas to North Dakota. And wherever we go, we go. Wherever we don't, we don't. Um, so we're going to see. We're going to see. I know that Evan and I, we're, we've been talking about this. Be watching our page, our the Carolina Weather Group page. We're going to kind of try to do uh, daily blogs and um, talk about what's what's going on with us for the day. So Evan and I will definitely do that, Chris. Has told us we can't drive. He's the only one driving. So Evan and I will be the one doing a lot of the blogs. But um, be looking out for that. Um, we've got our GoPros ready, and hopefully we'll have some footage to bring back uh, for the show Wednesday. But uh, we're looking forward to it. So uh, be on the, the lookout for that. So uh, let's end tonight with the replay from the NASA TV weather balloon launch that you saw earlier today here on the Carolina Weather Group. And uh, we appreciate you watching tonight. And again, join us next Wednesday night as Dr. Philip Klotzbach will be on. I know Shay is a good friend with Dr. Klotzbach. So uh, we'll have a great conversation about the tropics. And until then, we hope you have a great weekend. Stay cool out there. And uh, I guess it's the unofficial start of summertime with Memorial Day ra uh, rounding uh, the corner. So we will see you back here for another Carolina Weather Group, group episode next Wednesday night. Scotty gets an A-plus for closing us out. But, Shay, did you have a quick note? Oh, well, I was just going to add uh, one one nugget I forgot to mention at the end of my, my Tropics update was that the NOAA prediction will be coming out tomorrow. We'll find out what they think about the season coming up. We are in an El Nino. There's a 70% chance we will continue with an El Nino through summer of 2019. That that typically would uh, mean that we have a below average season in the Atlantic Basin. However, it's not entirely certain yet. So uh, we'll continue to watch. We'll see what they say. And, and Dr. Philip Klotzbach is actually a great guest to have on next week, just before the start of the season. He'll have a lot more insight for us. Sorry, I, I realized I was supposed to toss to you, James. Too. I was just, no, you're all Scotty, good. I seen your script over here, Scotty. Let's end tonight. I was like, let's automatically read that so we can close the show. So now we are closing. What's that scene in Anchorman where he just reads anything you put on the teleprompter? Yeah, the teleprompter, yeah. So I was just reading the teleprompter. So anyway, you guys have a great weekend. We'll see you back here next Wednesday night. So it seems like we've got our radio sound attached. We've got our balloon fully inflated and it's just over here ready for flight. Um, but before that, uh, what can you tell us a little bit about, more about what we're about to witness today? Well, we've got a beautiful day for a balloon release here at Wallops. We're going to see the balloon release here in just a minute or so. And uh, as it ascends into the atmosphere, we're going to see it uh, go through the troposphere and then eventually into the stratosphere uh, before it reaches about 100,000 feet or so. And that's where we'll see it pop and we'll uh, start to see it come back down. But um, we're going to get a lot of data from that, so it should be very interesting. And so other than sending this information to the National Weather Service, uh, what else is this data used for? Well, here at Wallops, we do a lot of orbital and suborbital launches that require us to uh, do balloon releases during the countdown. That provides a safety group here with a lot of information, a lot of meteorological data is uh, given to them during these releases. So we'll do about one balloon an hour during the countdown. And then as we get closer to T minus zero, we'll actually go to about every half an hour. So they have a lot of information uh, to determine if we are go or no go for launch. Wow, so how many launches does that end up being altogether for a launch? Uh, generally, we can do as many as 10 or 15. I think with the last uh, resupply mission to the space station, we actually did 15 balloon releases throughout the countdown. So uh, the meteorological technicians are, are very busy. Well, hey, speaking of launches, are we about ready for this countdown? I think so. Let's get to it. All right, is everybody ready? Let's get going. Five, four, 
three, two, one. There it goes. So as this balloon ascends, what does the data look like as it comes back to you? Well, the uh, first data that we get back in the weather office is in the form of what we call a SKU-T diagram, which provides us with a lot of temperature and dew point information up through the profile, also uh, wind speed and wind direction. And we look at that diagram to get basically an overall assessment of the atmosphere. So if it's a stable atmosphere like today, or sometimes we have an unstable atmosphere where we can have thunderstorm activity, that's a very important part of our uh, diagnostics that we do for weather forecasting. Well, it seems like we're almost ready to take NASA social questions. But before that, I have a quick question for you. So it seems like this is a ton of data that we're getting back. Um, but does this paint the, pol the full picture for weather? Uh, not entirely. We do have um, this radio sign information going into the computer models. But uh, this is all sent to the National Center for Environmental Prediction with NOAA. Uh, in addition to that, we have NASA satellites. We also have NOAA satellites with our uh, GOES and POSE uh, satellites. We also have surface observations, radar data that are all included with that data set. So it's a, a big collaboration of data, but the balloon is really our highest resolution data that we get. It gives us data back here at Wallops every second as it's ascending into the atmosphere.